0: Welcome aboard the Battleship Pretension. I'm Tyler Smith. I'm David Bax. Thank you for listening, David. Yes. How you doing?
1: Uh, I'm very excited to clue our listeners in on a new an exciting the opportunity for the Battleship <laughs> Pretension fan.
0: <laughs> this um, is a piece of land. Now listen to what we're going to tell you.
1: <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, we've been doing this for a very long time. Um, we're coming up on 12 years next month. Yeah. Next month's when you're listening to this. It's still January when we're recording it. Indeed, but yes. March will be twelve years, mm-hmm. um, and uh, it's been it's been going uh, very well. But uh, we keep getting more ambitious in terms of our coverage, in terms of festivals, and yeah. and other things that we that we travel to. And these things uh, cost money, and so don't worry, nothing's going to change for you unless you want it to, <laughs> right? Yeah. But we are going if you want to want
0: your podcast, you can keep your podcast. <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, yes, that's right. Um but uh we are going to, like so many other podcasts out there, we're starting the Patreon thing. Mm-hmm. And what that means is that there's gonna be more Battleship Retention available to you uh, if you want it. Um we hope you will. It's a great way to support the show yeah. and also to get some really fun we have a lot of really fun ideas. Um basically what we're going to be doing you can go to uh patreon.com slash battleship pretension right um and you can choose one of two levels to join that's right uh all right they have (laughs) they have fun names because tyler was in charge of that which is great (laughs) i'm not making fun i think it's awesome. you know what
0: honestly like I make, we make fun of my steering quite literally, uh, into the, uh, the, the naval brand, but so much of it is like, Oh, thank God we, we went with that because it just gives me something to latch on to. Like if I need the name of something, Hey, no problem. So yeah, we, at the moment we have uh, two tiers. I don't imagine a third one coming along. Uh, I think this is it, but We'll keep you posted.
1: And what are the what are the names of
0: them? All right, so there's a five dollar and a ten dollar. Uh huh. The five dollar is called the petty officer, okay. and the ten dollar is the admiral. Now, it's a big jump. It's a big jump. You'd <laughs> think that it would be the difference between five dollars and say a thousand. Yeah. But uh, no, only ten because when you've got, I guess I could have left myself some room and been like, you know. Chief Petty Officer, and they're like, "Wow, how how high up are they going to go?" Um, but yeah, so right now it's just Petty Officer and Admiral, and here's what you get.
1: Yeah, so for the Petty Officer level, uh, that'll be five dollars a month. You will get a new bonus episode every week that the main subscriber yeah. won't be able to listen to.
0: And we're not gonna do
1: some bullshit ten minute thing. No, gonna we be- are
0: windbags, and we are yeah. planning for each bonus episode to be a solid 45 minutes. Of course, we thought this podcast 12 years ago was going to be 40 to 45 minutes. And now look where we ended up. So yeah. you might get even more than you bargained yeah. for.
1: Yeah. 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 At this point, if you download a regular episode of battleship retention and it's 45 minutes, something went wrong. Like, <laughs> right. We got sick. Yeah. Or had to so David pictures. got a call
0: <laughs> yeah. and he's got to go. Yeah.
1: Um, yeah. So, um, so you'll get a new episode every week. Uh, probably we're thinking probably Tuesday night slash Wednesday mornings mm-hmm. is one that'll go up um, in addition to that our existing non-commentary premium episodes. This is why those of you who listened to the uh, movie journal earlier this Indeed. week when I told you to hang on, uh, you will immediately get those. So the 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 bonus episode we just recorded yeah. about the Oscar nominations, uh, Oscar nominees for this year, you'll get that automatically. You will get our episode. What what else What else will they get? Uh, our very first
0: premium episode was with our friend Bill Dwyer many years ago, and then we had... Uh, Scott and I and Jason Eakin talk about, come on and talk about the year 2007. Uh, we had uh, th- last year's BP's ceremony uh, with right. you, me, and Scott. That's available. So the $5 gets you new bonus episodes and our old bonus episodes, but not, not the commentaries.
1: commentaries. So you might be able to see where the $10 one is, right. is going. Yeah, um, uh, But, uh, yeah, so the $10 one, the, the Admiral level, Mm-hmm. Gets you uh, the same thing. It gets you a new episode every week, new bonus episode every week, all the existing bonus episodes, plus all of the existing commentaries. And Uh, let me say this: as somebody who uploaded all this stuff, uh
0: we have so many commentaries. (laughs) Like, as I started doing, you know, one movie at a time, because when we do commentaries, it's usually three, four, or five movies in a day. And so when I send them out to people, I tend to send them as like one unit. But when you're uploading one movie at a time, you're always like, this is ridiculous. Done a lot Why of have we done this to ourselves? Yeah. Uh, but yes, it is a lot of content.
1: So yeah, the $10 level, you get that, uh, you get the episode plus for those four bonus episodes uh, a month, you will get video. Which is something that apparently people want. (laughs) People, it's, are you excited? It's like, oh,
0: I hear them sitting and talking. Now I get to see it. And while, I realize that we're not selling it well, but people like it. Yeah, you get to see Tyler's
1: whole movie collection. You get to see some of my Riddlers. You get to see us uh, checking our phones while the other person is talking sometimes. Absolutely. <laughs> and it's like, and you get the fun
0: experience of, Oh, two guys with beards and glasses, which is which who's to say. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So, yeah. Um, So that's what the $10 level gets you. So the $5 gets you every Patreon episode going forward, plus our existing four bonus episodes. Mm -hmm. $10 gets you every Patreon episode going forward with video, plus our existing bonus episodes and our existing commentaries. Uh, Now, what I want to say about the commentaries going forward, once you become a Patreon subscriber um, because we only have so much time, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, those paid, uh, that the month of the commentaries, those will be the Patreon bonus episodes. So you won't have to buy the commentaries at either level going forward. Right. Um, and those will be your bonus episodes, um, for, for that month. And, uh, and but and those, those pay. but to non-Patreon people, the commentaries will still be available for yes. the normal 10 bucks, uh, for the package or whatever. Right. Um, so, uh, that's the main thing I also wanted to say and we'll, yeah, for the, for those of you who don't join the Patreon, nothing's going to change except at the end of episodes, you probably are going to hear us talk about what's on the Patreon this week. That's about the only thing that will, that will change for you. Don't worry. Um, I do want to tell Patreon, uh, our potential Patreon subscribers to uh, one of the things because, like I said, we're doing video for these, so we're essentially retiring the Ask BP um, thing, and that's going to become a monthly-ish uh, Patreon episode. So, if you have questions for us about our personal lives—not about our jobs—I'm not going to talk about our jobs. Mm-hmm. About our thoughts on movies, about anything, um, uh, you can you can uh, email them to me, David at BattleshipPatentee dot com. Um, and th- those will be part of our uh, monthly-ish mailbag episodes on on the Patreon for the Patreon s- subscribers. So that's Patreon.com/slash Battleship Retention. Yeah. That's our big announcement. Um, and, and again, for those of you who don't want to join, nothing's going to change.
0: Right? We're still going to have movie journals. We're still going to have uh, episodes proper. The premium content. If you want to buy it, you can. Uh, yeah. It's not going to be only available to pay, uh, Patreon subscribers, uh, patrons. I believe is what we should start calling them. Yeah. Um, and uh, I will. I will say this. It's. And I'm trying to examine myself to see if it's coming from a place of paranoia. I don't think it is, um, based on what other podcasters have mentioned to me um, about certain reactions uh whenever a patreon starts um i realize that we do have sponsors and we do sell bonus content and so some people might wonder why are you doing this how much money do you guys need um and we love our sponsors we are very uh grateful for them and if you want to sponsor Battleship Retention, you're always more than welcome to. Sure, um, we try to set our price points at a reasonable rate, but yeah, very um, reasonable. It, yeah, maybe yeah. maybe too reasonable. That's why <laughs> we're doing this Patreon. Yeah, um, but yeah, it's it it ultimately comes down to as David said, like he's going to Toronto Inter- International Film Festival. We do Comic Con. We, uh, we so just, just did Sundance. Sundance. Uh, we do stuff that people find interesting and you know you actually because of battleship Retention, and because of you going to sundance like people get reviews of movies that aren't going to come out for months and months and you as a as a as a reader and as a listener like you get first dibs on uh, on david's reviews of that and that kind of thing so uh and that does cost money because we after doing this for 12 years we don't necessarily like being out of our own pocket uh, yeah. which thankfully hasn't happened in a while but if this if the Patreon goes the way we would like it to go um, then
1: we can just keep adding stuff yeah we can keep doing you more know. stuff we can get better equipment yeah, um, that's true yeah newer equipment this laptop's getting pretty old yeah uh, yeah every time I, like like at, at Sundance I'd sit down with another critic to you know, like you sit at a bar or whatever and use the Wi Fi and people are just like writing reviews everyone would get out their laptop and then I like have to haul out mine, yeah. which is which is <laughs> crazy it's not that frust- big but it's but, frustratingly heavy <laughs> uh, yeah because laptops are so small now yeah um and and this this thing is uh yeah uh, giving me scoliosis uh, standing <laughs> yeah. in line at sundance um anyway so yeah battleship sorry patreon.com slash battleship pretension we're gonna have a lot of fun on the Patreon episodes. But I think that's going to be our main yes. goal with them is to keep them fun.
0: Partially because this is going to be a lot of recording uh, on our part. And so yeah. we want to keep ourselves interested and hopefully you interested as well. Yeah. Um, and it, I think it, it frees us up quite a bit. I mean, we do have <coughs> specific ideas that we will come back to uh, over and over again. Um, but, Yep. It can be like, Hey, uh, 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 one example is like, all right, we're going to pick a year at random and we're going to do our individual top five movies of that year. Yeah. <laughs> That's something that or, doesn't really lend itself to an episode Yeah, or, or pick an actor or yeah, a director
1: yeah. or something like that. So, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. And, um, and yeah, as we have ideas, like that's why I said monthly-ish mailbag. We're not going to be rigid with the Patreon. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like if, if there's a month where we have too many fun ideas fun ideas to do a mailbag, then we'll, we'll push it off to next, next month. Indeed. It's going to be fun. Um, and yeah, uh, only $5 for uh, all the episodes. $10, if you want all the episodes with video mm-hmm. and our past commentaries. Indeed.
0: Hey, everybody. Tyler Smith here. Um, so just something that we forgot to mention when we were talking about the Patreon is that uh, if you purchased... Our most recent bonus episode about this year's uh, Oscar nominations uh, with Dave Platt. If you purchase that and then you become uh, one of our patrons with either the $5 or $10 plan, uh, we will refund you the $1. fifty that you paid for the bonus episode. Um, we would hate for you to feel like you're paying for something twice. So, um so if you once again, if you bought the bonus episode and you subscribe to our Patreon, uh, you will get that dollar fifty back. So thank you very much.
1: Okay. Um yeah, I'm trying to think
0: what? Well, now I feel bad going into our sponsors. <laughs> I feel like maybe we can hold off until later.
1: Uh I mean, I guess I could talk about the thing I was gonna talk about at the Please top do, of the show. Uh, but I was gonna say, should we announce our next
0: commentary? Yes. Is that That's, a good time to do that, this? I think there's a good time to do it. So get people uh,
1: excited about it. It was all your idea, but I'm really on board. Yeah, so uh like I said, the Patreon will get you the just recorded uh Oscar nominees bonus episode. Um and it'll also get you our next commentary, which you can buy if you're not a pa- a patron. But right. our next commentary and it's which isn't for like a couple months at this point, but uh, yeah. yeah. it's almost 2 months uh from now, but um look everyone knows the most anticipated movie of 2019 for any thinking person. Okay. Is John wick three. Right. Right. And so in celebration of the great man himself, our next commentary is going to be, uh, four movies that are point break speed, the matrix and John wick. We are doing a Keanu kicks ass. Right. Uh, uh movie commentary marathon is going to be so much fun uh, slots are going to fill up with our, uh, our and your favorite guests. Yeah. Um, and those are going to be available at the end of March or the very beginning of April. I'm not entirely uh, sure. Pretty much end of March. Yeah. Okay.
0: Um, yeah. And what's, I'm sure there are people that are like, why aren't you doing bill and Ted is like, this is action, action only. only. Yeah. What's fun is that we could do a second round of these of like non action where you do bill and Ted Bram Stoker's Dracula. Oh, okay. Uh, the gift. Okay. And, the lake house,
1: the, you know? Yeah. So See, I was thinking you could do like an all comedy one with Bill and the, both the Bill and Ted movies. Okay. Parenthood. Sure. And, uh, much to do about nothing. Uh, much to do about nothing. There you go. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, where wow. he's by far the worst
0: part of it. Um, I still like that movie. I uh, know I do uh, too. Yeah. Uh, it's just, it's, you know i i think a lot of people including me have have gotten to a point where they're okay with uh keanu reeves and the fact that he has an acting career uh despite yeah. not being the most compelling actor in certain roles like but, like in bram stoker's dracula but there's um, no one else like him That's a hundred percent true. Do you remember? Well, you told, you told me about it, but it's been, it's long since defunct is a fame tracker. Uh, Uh, and so it was this great website. I think that, I think it's still there. I think you can still read their old stuff, but it's not active. Yeah. It was a great Uh, website. So they would do a thing where they would pick like an actor and they would say like, okay, are they, are should they be more famous? Are they famous enough? Do they deserve their fame? Like, at what level, like, what level are they at? And then what level should they be? So in some cases, it was, I can't even think of an example. But, like, it'd be, like, a big star. And it's like, yeah, but in actuality, they should probably be at, say, C. Thomas Howell level <laughs> fame. And then Keanu Reeves was the only one that where they said, his level is Keanu Reeves. And his, that is the level he can be at. And yeah. no one else is there. He exists outside of of standard Hollywood. He just kind of does his own thing. Yeah. Along the, I feel like Denzel Washington is a lot is that as well. Like he seems to exist outside of the standard mm. Hollywood machine,
1: but also Keanu Reeves is a weirdo in real life, which is, yes. which is great, which is why one of the many, many, many reasons I've always loved, uh, um, Constantine mm. is that it's Keanu Reeves and Tilda Swinton, two of cinema's great weirdos. Uh, and I believe off there's you. a uh, Peter Stormare. Peter Stormare there as well. does that's, show up in the end. Yeah, a lot of weirdos. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, Pruitt Taylor Vince. Uh, Boy. Yeah, you got a, a great selection. Of we- I've, and, I've been having And uh,
0: this- Sh- Shia LaBeouf. I've had this movie sitting on my shelf for years.
1: What's your thinking? Still haven't watched it. It's so good. Now I feel like I, anyway. I should, but okay. Okay, so should I talk about the thing I was going to talk about? Sure. Okay, this will be real quick, but I just want to, uh, I'm in a weird position here. Tyler mentioned Sundance. I just came back from Sundance. I saw, among among other things, I saw a bunch of things that we'll talk about next week on the podcast, uh, but uh, we had to do our uh, episode 630 uh, this time. Mm-hmm. Um, uh but one of the things that I saw was Joe Berlinger's Extremely Wicked, Shockingly Evil, and Vile, which is a movie in which Zach Efron plays Ted Bundy. And I guess during the... I think it was while it was at Sundance, the trailer came out. Or at least that's when I first started uh, hearing it. And people, a lot of people uh, were up in arms at the trailer because they're saying, why are you romanticizing the serial killer, yeah. glorifying him, or making him seem cool in some way. Um, and it's just, uh, the reason I say I'm in a weird position is because having seen the movie, I don't actually think it's that good, Mm -hmm. but it's not that. Yeah. And I watched the trailer and I was like, I get how someone could, you know, could, could glean that from the trailer. But in 2019, are we still so gullible that we're assuming the trailer represents what the movie is going to be? Uh, I'd say, not only yes but also
0: maybe even more so in 2019 than in the past i mean it's it's definitely a kind of a knee-jerk culture right now like right. If you get even a whiff of which is what a trailer is supposed to be it's supposed to be a whiff of the movie and if you get that and you don't like what you smell like there's blood in the water and to mix my metaphors like you'll
1: and everyone You smell blood in the water they smell blood in the water <laughs> And in doing so, they drown. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's, that's, that's how your metaphor ends up. <laughs> if you smell blood in the water, you will drown. There you go. So what I'm saying is, don't judge a movie by its trailer. And also, do you not know about Ted Bundy? Like, part of the thing was that he was good-looking and charming, and right. that's how he lured women in, you know, and got them to let their guard down. Mm-hmm. So. That, that's how Zach Afron is is playing it. It's, it's why they it's a cast good performance.
0: a charismatic, attractive, leading man yeah. to play him. Like Yeah.
1: So, yeah. Uh, again, I can't really recommend the movie that much, but also I can recommend not judging a movie by the trailer. What I would really recommend is just stop watching trailers uh, as much as possible. Right. But I know that uh, that's a losing battle for me. Okay. Let's pay some bills. Okay. Uh, Won't be any of this on the Patreon episodes. That's true. Though if you want to sponsor our patreon no, i'm joking that's i'm joking not true. okay, I'll we'll never do that. <laughs>
0: Uh, boy, can you imagine how angry people would be? Okay. Uh, this episode is brought to you by Mubi, a curated online cinema that brings its members a handpicked selection of the best independent, international, and classic films. Every day, Mubi's curators introduce a new title, and you have 30 days to watch it. That means there's always 30 wonderful films to enjoy, all for only $8.99 a month. Plus, when you use their mobile apps, you can download films to watch offline. Currently available on Mubi is Steve James Stevie. A film that I have not seen, but you have, and you specifically wanted to, to talk about. It.
1: Well, I just want to know, because, yeah, it's a good, it's, it's, it's from, um, uh, what's his name, who made Hoop Dreams? Steve James. Steve James uh, made Hoop Dreams, um, which Steve James and uh, Kartemquin is that how you say it? Cartemquin Films, his, the production company know. that he works with, is Chicago-based, mm-hmm. where you and I went to school, <laughs> and the uh, DP, or one of the DPs of Stevie, was a cinematography instructor at... Our school, I took a class with her. Uh, her name uh, was and remains Dana Cooper. She was a great teacher um, and stevie 's a, a really good movie
0: i 'm always interested in cinematography within documentaries like it 's not like it doesn 't exist. Camera right, placement yeah. is very important, but it 's something people rarely talk about they 'll talk about the editing a lot, but they t- tend not to talk about the way a documentary is shot I, maybe because most of them are pretty straightforward, but you still have it's still placement of the camera for maximum
1: effect. Yeah. You yeah. know,
0: but uh, anyway, okay. Uh, so yeah, so Stevie is uh, available on Mubi, and there's a special offer for listeners of battleship retention. You can try Mubi free for a month. Just go to Mubi.com. That's M U B I.com slash battleship to redeem now. Uh, this week's episode is also brought to you by the Dice Enthusiast Presents podcast, a 10-chapter te- a podcast miniseries about four roommates who endure a number of life-changing events while simultaneously playing a board game that lasted for the entirety of 2017. Uh, to find out just how crazy their lives got, go to diceenthusiast.com or click on the ad at battleshippretension.com.
1: And I want to tell you about com. You see, com is where you go for professional quality earbuds in a variety of stylish styles and colorful colors. They look great. They sound great. And uh, Tyler and I use them each and every day of our lives. Today, I was listening because I'm trying to, I, you, know, you know, my greatest fear in life is being out of touch. Yes. So I'm listening to what the kids are listening to. Um i don't know if that's true actually <laughs> yeah but um yeah i uh, i was listening to uh there's a, an artist uh, her first album is almost coming out uh is coming out in a month or two um her name is Billie eilish she, she's from right here in in los angeles um had an ep like a year and a half ago and i was listening to her new uh uh single this morning uh on my tweet earbuds and I was like, this is great. And I went to look her up and saw, I, 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 I try not to do the God I'm old thing, mm-hmm. but she was born in 2001. Uh, <laughs> uh, and, uh, in any case, um, terrifying as that is to me, um, the music's great, and it sounded great on my tweakedaudio.com earbuds. They're available at a low, low price at tweakedaudio.com, but if you use the offer code pretension at checkout, you get one-third off that low, low price and no shipping charges. So go to tweakedaudio.com and use the offer code pretension. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with BiteClear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? I don't know if you've been keeping up on our episode numbers. Um, I don't mean how many downloads they're getting. That's doing great. Round, what I'm obviously. talking about is each episode, each non-movie journal episode is numbered. Mm-hmm. So the number of weeks we've been doing the show. We've done one a week um, for, at this point, 630 weeks. Um, wait. 630? Six, 620? 20?
0: I think it's 620. No, is it? this seems like an easy thing to look up uh, which I will do.
1: It is 620. Yeah. 620 hey, right. weeks. Sorry. I was getting ahead of myself. Um, and we've had a tradition for most of the, that those weeks in which every time we do an episode in which that number mm-hmm. on the, that's on your, your podcast player or your phone or, or your desktop, you mm-hmm. know, screen or whatever, uh, ends in a zero, but is not evenly divisible, divisible by 50. Mm mm-hmm. We do a profile. Yeah. And so we, we might be changing things up with the Patreon. We are not, you can rest assured changing things up with the every 10 weeks. You're going to hear every 50, this horseshit, uh, (laughs) spiel (laughs) that you did not tune in for.
0: Yeah every 10 weeks. I don't don't think you worry about that. 10 weeks is
1: just long enough for people to like to kind of forget that I'm going to do this. I do. <laughs> and then and then you That's like, what I'm hoping. Yeah, and um, um,
0: hopefully the the <clears throat> listeners are just as exasperated by it as I am.
1: So, um we are doing a profile and as we have been doing a lot recently on the profiles. Yeah. Um which I don't think we have any um, plans to stop doing. We were doing a tribute to someone who passed away recently. Mm-hmm. And so this time we will be profiling the career of director Nicholas rogue. Okay. Um, whom I, uh, I guess I first would have come to with the witches, which we'll talk about, mm-hmm. uh, later, but I wasn't really at that age. I didn't really know about what directors were. Yeah. You know, I think the first time that I realized, that a Nicholas rogue, something was something was when I saw walkabout, which was probably, uh, when I was 19 or 20. Yeah. was many, Um, many years ago, I remember you raving about it at the time. Oh, we lived together, right in Chicago. Yeah. So I was probably 20, yeah, 20 years old or so. Um, uh, I've since gone on to see, uh, a number of his films, including some of the ones that I watched for this episode, because Mm -hmm. I think the, if you're to ask the, the the consensus has long been that the seventies were Nicholas rogues decade right up until 1980, which is bad timing and that it's kind of downhill after that. And so what I ended up watching is a lot of the eighties and early nineties oh, okay. stuff, um, which, uh, was not as, as successful either commercially or, or critically uh, as his earlier stuff, but is definitely worth recommending on its own. So we'll get into that. But do we first want to, I want to ask you because you've seen fewer of these films. Yeah. What do you think of when you think of a Nicholas rogue film? What do you associate him with? Okay. Uh, <clears throat> this is going to sound strange when people say
0: that like his heyday was the seventies. Um, i feel like that's probably true but i'm gonna go a step further he is the 70s (laughs) okay by which i mean when you watch his movies and and yes i haven't seen that many but those that i have when you think of the 70s style um i'd say late 60s early 70s style Mm -hmm. of a of Quick cuts, usually a, a fair amount of non linear editing. Yeah, um, a lot of zooms. A lot of zooms, uh, Dutch angles, that sort of thing. Um, a certain tone that just keeps you either on edge or just on your toes. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, that's, uh, there's a lot, I mean, I think of that with like De Palma of the time and movies like Easy Rider. Uh, and Nicholas Rogue is is that. I mean, he is the epitome of like a 70s filmmaker. And I'm not saying that wholly negatively or wholly positively. Uh, If you don't like that style of filmmaking, he is
1: definitely not for you. And he's always been very much for me. And I think anyone, once you get on his wavelength, it's... um Cause I hadn't really thought about it like that. And you're right. That it's interesting to hear him compared to Brian De Palma, because I see where you're coming from in terms Mm -hmm. of the zooms and lots of quick cutting. Um, but I put them on almost different spectrum, different ends of the spectrum, right? Because Brian De Palma is so postmodern and self-aware,
0: which is again not a bad thing.
1: Whereas, uh, Nicholas Roeg is more of an impressionist. You know, he, he's, you know, um, if you remember, if you listen to the movie journal, I talked about The Other Side of the Wind, which is a very what you're talking about yeah. type of type of movie. Um, and I described it as as a filmmaker thinking out loud, you know, and Nicholas Rogue does seem like someone who is just always reacting to the moment. And his movies feel so organic and feel like they're coming directly out of him, that he is thinking and speaking in cinema. Yes, it is. As opposed to through cinema. There is a certain...
0: Sense presentness uh to his films where you can almost see him of course filmmaking is it's a very in-depth process so this isn't literally true but it is almost as if in the moment you feel you hear him saying like hey what about if i did this Uh (laughs) all right and then it's happening uh it's it there's an almost in some ways in some ways there's almost a stream of consciousness quality to it, yeah. but not the character's consciousness, his, but there, like, in, I, well, we won't get to the first move, but there are some where I was watching it. And it's like, and we are cutting to something that's going to happen in the future. Like we're going to, we see a character who is not even introduced as a character yet. Yeah. That's uh, even the concept bad. of the character has not been introduced, but we're cutting to them just for a moment. And then it's back to business. And it's like that sir that 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 does that doesn't it's almost as though the dream self is like oh boy i can't wait till we get to this moment
1: <laughs> but uh, that, that is one way i, don't I don't mean for it, it too but i i don't think of it that way <clears throat> i think of it as i think he tends to and we'll get into more specific examples he tends to have because i do think it is being very much of the character i think he tends to ha- have this idea that characters can that their psychology can affect their landscape sure and so the reason we're seeing the future is because their fates are already sort of sealed by the way that they are thinking about the world. It um, there is a, a a touch of expressionism mm-hmm. to his films yeah, as right, well, right. Uh,
0: certainly stylistically and also just in the in the editing.
1: But let's go back to before he was a, a director when he was a, a cinematographer. He, mm-hmm. I mean, he worked his way up. Um, uh, I was reading because I was I was doing some research. I was reading a. A really great uh or reading about a really great anecdote about how nicholas rogue and alan parker were good friends but also kind of frenemies Mm -hmm. in a way because alan parker was always making fun of nicholas rogue for being out of touch because he came from money Mm -hmm. whereas alan parker came from the working class but nicholas rogues uh rebuttal to that was always like alan parker you may have come from the working class but you went straight from like you know secondary school to art school to, you know, Mm -hmm. where Nicholas rogue came up through, cinema or through the film industry as a laborer, Little mm-hmm. you know, just like showing up, lugging equipment, you know, and then moving up to fo- focus, pulling and moving up to second, uh, to, um, uh, second unit because he, he was the second unit DP on Lawrence of Arabia. Yeah. And then he was hired as the DP yeah. for Dr. Zhivago. And then and that didn't last. It didn't last, but, uh, it does make me, uh, I'm, I'm not sure if, you know, we were talking about, uh, with the, with the Oscars, um, I mean, I can't remember that that was us, but uh, um, the idea that once a director has completed a certain percentage or a certain number of days on a film, they have to be credited. It's part of, mm. it's part of the DGA agreement. Okay. So that's why, you know, um, Brian Singer is credited, even though Dexter Fletcher right. um, uh, directed, uh, uh, you know, at least his substantial portion of Bohemian Rhapsody. But uh, there are various reports, but some people say that, Nicholas rogue shot more than half of Dr. Zhivago and then Freddie young replaced him and Freddie young won the Oscar. Hmm. Um, that's kind of, I mean, it's kind of fucked up, right? Yeah, uh, if that's true.
0: Um, it is interesting to think of like a, such a classical filmmaker as David lean working with somebody like Nicholas rogue, who is just so modern in his sensibilities. Uh, yeah, and I'm I could see sure them not getting on. Yeah.
1: Um, but let's get into the movies. Speaking okay. of him getting on with directors, his his first directing job was a co directing job. But it was kind of by accident. Yeah. Um, cause, uh, Donald camel or Camel, I never know how to say that. Uh, I love him as a director. He made demon seed, which you and I both love. That's right. Um, and he also, Clean made, these lenses. uh, he also made the movie, um, uh, the white of the eye, which, um, hmm. I love, but I understand has its detractors as well. Uh, but, They first worked together co-directing Performance, Mm. which is a movie about a um, really sociopathically um, uh, violent gangster who finds himself uh, on the short end of the stick within his within his gang yeah. because he sort of went off the reservation and I think killed someone he wasn't supposed to. So now they're going to kill him. Even so, though I did see, I
0: saw a performance and, oh, okay. uh, even though the person that he killed was hurting him in yeah. the moment and yeah. doing very terrible things to him.
1: Um, but it all like started because he wasn't supposed to go right see the guy. So he's, he, he was acting as a free agent a little too much. So he's got to go into hiding and he ends up hiding out at the house, of a former rock star Mm -hmm. uh, played by Mick Jagger, who was a current rock star uh, at at the time. Um, And, uh, you know, definitely has a lot. The movie definitely has a lot to say about masculinity. um, Very much so. And, and, and and class to a certain extent. And what, uh, but also what in terms of taste and culture, what is considered masculine, which is something that I think is, uh, we probably don't talk about enough, but is very much like as a, especially as a, as a kid, as a boy, you know, there's a lot of like, I can't like that, you know? Right. I'll tell you the first movie that I ever saw twice in a movie theater um, was the Little Mermaid? I loved the Little Mermaid. Okay, but I also felt self conscious about like I didn't tell oh, sure. my school chums how much I loved the Little Mermaid, and that I was going to see it again with my sister <laughs> that following weekend. Did you, you also know? tell them? Did you also tell them that you called them chums? <laughs> yeah, I think that might have. Well, I had the whole uh, uh, marine thing going on, right, so exactly. I was thinking about chum. <laughs> um, uh, anyway, so you watched the two? What did you, What did you think?
0: Uh, it's definitely. <clears throat> having seen my fair share of uh british gangster movies it it winds up being a very interesting riff on that because those are so often about a specific type of masculinity that where it's all about where the emotions are all at the surface and they're usually anger and because I'm going to make a lofty statement here. Gangsters are inherently self-centered. Uh-huh. Uh, it's kind of the nature of them is uh, for me to be rich, you need to be dead. Uh-huh. Uh, so I'm going to make that happen because I don't want to not be rich. Um, and so these characters tend to be very impulsive and whatever they think uh, should happen is just what's going to happen. They are not introspective. They're, they they do not question why they do things. Yeah. And so if you see stuff like, Uh, you know the original get carter uh and then stuff and then later stuff like sexy Beast, um and even even the limey a little bit um but that one the the film itself is introspective but uh but just these psychopathic characters um and this idea that the character Chaz, played by James Fox, who actually would go on to be in Sexy Beast, mm-hmm. um, and incidentally I took the liberty of looking up James Fox. After performance, he took a break from acting and became an evangelical Christian and wow. and was that for a while. And when you watch performance, like, yeah, I see it. <laughs> Someone needed to scrub himself a bit. Uh but uh But, you know, good for him for, uh, because to my knowledge, uh, he remained, uh, uh, I say remained, he's still, he's still around, he's Mm -hmm. 79, but he is still a Christian, but he missed acting and came back to it and was in stuff like sexy beast, which in which his character is very hedonistic and all that. And so, uh, you know, good for him for still committing to the craft. Um, but, uh, but yeah, the character of Chaz—it's a great performance, uh, precisely because I detest him so much. Uh-huh. Um,
1: but I don't like
0: a lot of other people either. Um,
1: yeah, his, Mick Jagger's like character other... is a, a a jerk. He's yeah. conceited, um, yeah. but he's also kind of uh, emotionally wounded right. in a way. Um, and I just I like the parallel of the characters because
0: these are these are two guys who. Granted, they went very different ways, but in both cases, they are outside the norm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as a result, they both have turned into self-centered yeah. uh, assholes, one of them much more dangerous than the others. but but And then even within the world of the gangsters themselves, Chaz is just this kind of mad dog that— people like okay as long as we're able to as long as he benefits us great uh but the minute he goes a little bit off the leash then you know what uh we need to get rid of him Um, and i do like how comical the gangsters are and they seem kind of inept yeah uh but yeah it's so just from a story standpoint i find it interesting and and the way it explores the what connects these two characters and yet how they chaz certainly sees himself as so very different Um, yeah um
1: Stylistically. Well, that's what I was going to say is that apparently um, a lot of the style of the way that that the movie is cut together mm. is something that we would come to associate with Nicholas Rogue, but apparently most of that came from Donald Camel, yeah. so I wonder how much of Nicholas Rogue, like he obviously knew how to shoot a movie. Right. I wonder how much of his editing instinct he just learned from Donald Camel or Camel.
0: And that's the thing is, when I think of something like Demon Seed, I don't remember it having quite this uh, quality to okay. it, so I think Nicholas Rogue, like just found something that worked for him and then said, I'm going to do this a lot. Yeah. Uh, let me ask you this because the films of his that I've seen and I, uh, I thought it was three. I realized looking over his filmography, it's four. Um, I, okay. His films are extremely sexual, but I'm reluctant to say, I think they're sexual, but not sensual. They're not, yeah. Do you know what I mean. Like those kind, those hard cuts and stuff do not make this and and an particularly erotic.
1: Yeah, they're not very erotic, even though. Yeah. yeah, he will get to his one of the most famous things he did was a sex Indeed. scene. Uh, one of the most famous sex scenes um, uh, in in cinema, but he doesn't yeah he doesn't tend there's a lot of sex in his movies but he doesn't tend to see it as a very positive thing a lot of the time no um it'll 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 get worse some of his stuff gets pretty perverse even Um,
0: even when uh i'm jumping ahead a little bit to the one you're talking about like even sex scenes that are emotionally positive for the characters which i think it's safe to say is not the case in any of the scenes in is that true any of the chaz-based scenes uh-huh. in performance, uh, but also uh, there are a number of sex scenes, uh, or they're not full scenes, but like uh, it's hard to it's hard to break his movies into scenes. Yeah, uh, do you know what I mean? Yeah, like definitely moments. I'll just say moments. There yeah. are sexual moments in performance with the Mick Jagger character and his girlfriends and that sort of thing, um, and those could be seen as. I think the characters see that as kind of liberating but the char- but the Mick Jagger character is still inherently selfish and so yeah. it's hard to see it as as uh an exercise in vulnerability as opposed to the movie we're talking about is don't look now that scene is a very positive thing between the characters, but Nicholas rogue still seems suspicious of it somehow, yeah. but we'll, we'll, well, get,
1: to yeah, we'll get to that in a minute. Yeah. A couple more just notes about uh, performance just to look forward um, to things that will come up again. This is not the first time he will cast a famous musician in a lead mm-hmm. role. Uh, There's at least two more that I can think of. Um, And this is also not the first time that he will make a movie that the studio absolutely hates. Oh, sure. Warner Brothers delayed this movie for years, which you watched it. So you remember the part there's. Mick Jagger's kind of fucking with him and saying, when have we met before? And he's like, yeah. And at one point he says like, no, it was 1972 or whatever. Mm-hmm. Or no, it was, uh, the movie came out in 1972 so he says, no, it was 1970 or whatever. Yeah. That was supposed to be a joke about him saying a future date. Right. But the <laughs> movie sat around for three years because <laughs> uh, Warner Brothers hated it. Yeah. Um, and uh, uh, so, yeah, that's, that's some things to, to look forward to. Uh, next up, the next year is Walkabout. And this is another thing. Uh, I, I I watched a an um, interview with um, from like 2011 with Nick Rogue and his son Luke Rogue, who plays the young boy in mm-hmm. Walkabout, and um, the uh, why am I drawing a blank on her name all of a sudden? But the the girl who plays the 16 year old girl in um, uh, is it Jenna A Gutter something like that um, in in Walkabout? And anyway, she, he was talking about uh, again speaking about this. Jenny A Gutter, yes, Jenny A So, So. Um, studios and funding and stuff his initial screenplay for walkabout was about 15 pages long (laughs) because all the stuff yeah that all the descriptions of the scenes and stuff was like you were saying he was like no i have that in my head or i'll figure it out when i'm there but he had to like sort of go to australia and like pick up some stuff and to work it indiscreetly so he had something he could, he could present for funding because no one's gonna no one was gonna fund his 15 page feature script right. um, but uh walkabout is based on um a uh, a novel that i have not read about a brother and sister who get lost in the australian an english brother and sister uh this is a big thing with him actually after performance he's considered one of the great British or at least English directors, mm. but after performance, very little very few of his movies are really about England. Yeah. Like they figure they feature English people are abro- abroad as with Walkabout or sort of kind of with The Man Who Felt the Earth, which is about yeah. an alien in America, but it's a British alien. And um, Julie Christie and Don now, she's British. Oh, that's right. She is British. And the, yeah, then there's but then there's also a lot of stories about Americans abroad. Mm-hmm. Um uh, yeah, don't look now. Uh, and um, Eureka will talk about um, and, uh, the witches. Uh, oh yeah. Yeah. Again, the, the I, kid I, is American. Um, so yeah, uh, it's about the, the brother and sister who get lost in the outback and then befriend a slightly older, Abor- Aboriginal boy. Um, and uh, they have a uh, dark and sometimes violent, sometimes erotic uh, journey mm-hmm. through the Outback, hopefully, to safety and civilization. Right. But uh, you'll have to watch the movie to find out. Uh, is this one of the four that you've seen? No. Okay. Well, I saw clips of it. Uh, I did read the novel
0: uh, in seventh grade, and we saw a couple clips of it, but I've not seen the whole film. And certainly the uh, eroticism is something that uh, I did not see.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. Um, but this is—so, in a, in a way, this is his first um, film— Really, because he was a co-director the first time. Uh, But clearly, still not learning to work within a system. Eventually, he'd Mm -hmm. make The Witches, which is a big, you know, Jim Henson-produced, you know, uh, big-budget studio movie. But um, he went to Australia with his family and a crew of about six people and just hung out in the outback and shot this movie. Um, That's awesome. it's, It's an incredibly, incredibly gorgeous movie. Um, and that's something that he, even in movies that you might consider his lesser movies that that'll come up later. Um, they're all beautiful to look at. He mm-hmm. comes from the camera background. He knows, uh, how to frame a shot and he knows how to light a shot and he knows about mise-en-scene mm-hmm. and, um, every move, every frame of every one of his movies is, is gorgeous. Um, but, uh, there's also something very sinister about the landscapes that he creates. Um the uh I would ne- you know you know me you know I'll never say that the location is like another character because I hate that. Right. But within within his films there is a psychic connection between people and, and their landscapes mm-hmm. and it does feel like the outback is not just Indifferent to them, that it wants to hurt, hurt them. Yeah. Because not only is the nature trying to hurt them, the um. Do you know how I, I can't remember? You said you read the novel, right? Mm. Uh, how do they end up in the Outback in the novel? Uh. Well, it was a long
0: time ago okay. that I read it. I don't because in I, the movie I might be getting it mixed up. With, I mean, I read both. Right. But. It might. I might be thinking of like *Lord of the Flies*. It's some kind of crash. I think, right? Is so it? in
1: the movie, I don't know how it is in the novel. In the movie, their father drives them out to the outback and then tries to kill them and kills himself because he's gone insane and lights the car on fire. I do not recall if that is the. Uh, <laughs> so I'll look even it up before now. nature and animals and exposure are trying to kill them, their own father is firing a gun at them. Um, <clears throat> yeah nicholas rogue finds a lot of beauty in the world but also finds it to be an incredibly dangerous and violent place
0: uh let's move okay on. yes so, okay i was correct yes it's a it's a, a plane crash uh in the in the book so the fact that <laughs> that he chose to have it be you know admittedly when you think about it when it's just him and a few people well they can't they can't have a plane crash. Right. And so the, the initial horror of that story came, uh, uh, from a place of pragmatism, I guess.
1: Um, okay. So I have not seen the documentary Glastonbury fair. Okay. I have seen don't look now. Yes. As have I. Okay. So, um, I'm not sure if this is, well, maybe it's not, um, it's almost certainly not the example you were talking about, but speaking of seeing things before they happen,
0: Right. Uh, right at I the mean, very beginning. It of happens in performance. Is, uh, like we actually just for just for a That's split right. second, we see the Mick Jagger character. That's right. Before he's been the, as as a character that exists has even been introduced. Yeah. Um, it's uh, very strange.
1: Well, here it bef- makes
0: more sense in this.
1: Uh, well, but it, here before uh, Don Sutherland and Julie Christie's um, daughter dies, mm-hmm we see a glimpse of the Venice hotel room where the movie ends up mm. later. Um, and then again, speaking of him changing things from the novel In in the novel, uh, don't look now she dies of an illness, mm. uh, in the movie, she drowns in the pond and they're right. on their, on their property. Um, and again, talking, speaking about the things that are going on with the characters, uh, uh, affecting the world. He's watching slides. because Alan Sutherland is, uh, he's, He's, like, Like been paid to renovate a church in Venice? Yeah, he, like, restores buildings. Okay, that's what he does. And so he's watching... He's looking at slides of the church that he's going to go over to Mm -hmm. Venice to restore. And one of them, like tears as he, as it goes through the projector Mm -hmm. and this like red light comes through at the exact moment. Yeah. And I don't know if it really is the exact moment within, within the movie. It's the exact moment that the daughter is, is, is drowning. And he then rushes out. He's been
0: given, he doesn't hear anything. He didn't see anything. He just suddenly knows that something is very wrong. Yeah. And so he runs out. And so this (laughs) strange as it may sound, Of the films that I've seen, this might be the one that makes the most sense uh, where the style actually plays into the story itself, where Uh there is uh, not necessarily not not telepathy but like what would you call it someone that can see the future like i guess just like psychic yeah elements to the characters and being able to for foresee something yeah that we don't know and they don't know and so uh it's like oh okay nicholas rogue made a movie that plays in uh, you know is telling a story that plays into his style good for him
1: yeah uh and don't look now is I guess considered a horror movie um, and it definitely has horror elements uh, to it I just uh, I mean I think I tend to think of it as a Nicholas Rogue movie and then people are like I see it described as a horror movie and I'm like oh yeah I guess that's what it is because um, they uh, after you know going through the very sad process of uh, mm-hmm. burying um their their daughter they do go to venice right and then while they're there they're stalked, but stalked by uh a what might be some sort of uh, uh, uh specter of their dead daughter right. in a in a bright red coat yeah um or it might just be a psychotic killer um yeah and and, so it has that horror type element but let's get to the sex scene yeah because yeah it is it's very famous because it's um i think there there's just very little i mean it's not real penetrative sex but it's as close to unsimulated Uh, you know they're they're right up uh uh, against one another and shot in sort of uh, often full body at yeah. once. You know, there's not a lot of like, um, y- you know, you're not getting little glimpses of like, oh, right. a hand on a shoulder blade or like the sort of yeah. things we see. Which is' something wrong with those when they're done well. It, it it is very explicit, and yet I don't find it especially erotic. Except what I do like about it is that it's not j- that it it's sex between a married couple. Yeah. Which is surprisingly rare <laughs> to see mm-hmm. in movies. And again, his playing with chronology thing. Do you remember how he, he cross cuts yeah. the sex scene with shots of them getting dressed after having sex, right? which is it's an uh, odd choice, but it's so it, kind of great. Yeah. It, Cause it, it says so much about the, their familiarity with yeah. one another that, you know, this is, um, you know, like when it's in most, sex scenes in a movie it's like the end of a first date or something they fall into bed and then like it's the next morning whereas like once you're a married couple you might you know have sex and then got to go to that thing we got to go to right you know that's a yeah Yeah.
0: okay so being raised the the way i was raised where you know you don't have sex until you're married which was the case with me incidentally um not, I don't, Not incidentally. Know, what was that? Yeah, I mean, I mean on, on purpose. Yeah, it was on purpose. It's just like, <laughs> we, we j- Jen and I just kept meaning to, and then we just forgot. There's
1: so much wedding planning <laughs> going on. Exactly.
0: It's like, ah, we got to go to that dinner, you know. We gotta, we um, gotta pick out these flowers. We don't have time. But I do think that there's, there's the, definitely the potential, like when you know the specific day that you're going to lose your virginity and you know that it's going to be with this person that you love, like it really gets blown up in your head. And, of course, it is very important on any number of levels, physical, emotional, all that. Um, but you don't think, and because of movies and that sort of thing, you don't think of the mundane aspect of it. Yeah. And when it comes right down to it, like, yeah sex is awesome. High five. Uh, and you feel very close to this other person and then you just keep going with your day. Yeah. (laughs) You're just like, well, I guess I better check my email. You know, unmarried Tyler never would have thought of that. It's just like, why am I not doing this all the time? And surely it's like in movies where afterwards you both just lay there in each other's arms. Like, no, sometimes you got to get this in and then you then yeah. you have to go to work or something yeah. like that and that <clears throat> and his choice to shoot it that way i could see it it is the it, there there have been some sex scenes between married uh, a married couple it's something you don't see very often yeah. because it's not seen as romantic and this is seen as like there's it, it's it, it's romantic it's a little bit erotic but it is undeniably comfortable and yeah. familiar. They know each other and they love what they're doing and they love each other. But the aftermath is, it's not just as much a part of it as the physical act, but it is a part of it. The getting undressed and then doing this and then getting dressed and going, at, going uh, about your day. It's such an odd choice. For this movie, yeah, like, why is it important for yeah. this movie? Aside from my one of my take uh, takeaways, one of my takes away was uh, early on, I wasn't sure if this couple, if the death of their daughter was going to tear them apart, um, and then in this yeah. moment, you actually see, you no, know, they still really love each other, and they still would rather be with each other than any than really anything else. Like even when you see him working, you part of me, I think we're just kind of we see this in so many other movies. We're just used to, oh, he's really into his work. He's probably having an affair or something like that. (laughs) No, he's in love with his wife and he he likes his work. But he loves his wife, as uh, John Candy says in *Planes, Trains, and Automobiles*, and that scene shot that way because if it were if it were just the sex scene, someone somewhere could make the argument that that's them trying to that's them in sort of in denial, like trying right. to drown their grief in this other kind of passion. But because we see the mundane part too, we see that it's all that's this is their life it's all part of it and yeah. it's such an odd choice it's out of nowhere it's a long scene mm-hmm. but it's it's brilliant it yeah. is a brilliant thing and it's because right. it's not erotic that i i I guarantee it's because it's not those you know it's not treated like a standard movie sex scene that so many people thought like it has to be real look how <laughs> look how <laughs> right. real it
1: feels yeah yeah you know um i've been talking for a while i'm sorry that, no that's quite all right um uh, back to real quick, then we'll move on, but real quick back to the horror thing. Uh, Bernard Rose, who directed one of my all-time favorite horror movies, Candyman. Okay. Uh, he uh, went on to become a good friend of Nicholas Rogue's, and actually his uh, the DP on Candyman was Nicholas Rogue's uh, uh, camera, assistant cameraman. Mm-hmm. Anyway, um, he discovered Nicholas Rogue's work at a double bill of Don't Look Now and The Wicker Man, which is not Nicholas Rogue. Right. But... He said, like, to this day, he never really has understood the cult around the Wicker Man because... After having just watched "Don't Look Now," it felt so conventional and boring and safe to him. <laughs> that's pro- that's definitely
0: true. It is a very straight. Have you seen The Wicker Man? I've never seen it. Neither it's person. very straightforward. It's a fascinating film. I really like it. But yeah from f- uh, from a style and structure standpoint, Do- "Don't Look Now" is just yeah. I mean, in many ways, it's just batshit crazy. It, in- it, in- it incorporates so many things. Like you didn't even mention the two sisters, who are just uh, oh, two, right. two British sisters who happen to be vacationing. in in Venice, and and this speaks to something that I I wanted to mention, which is, you know, in the sex scene, of course, there's going to be sexual elements, and in the life of a rock star and a hedonistic gangster, you're going to have those as well. But there's a scene where one of the sisters, uh, they don't know, they're not friends with uh, Donald Sutherland and Julie Christie. They just happen to be visiting in at least at this point in the story they happen to be visiting venice and one of them is blind and is a psychic and so there's a sort of a seance scene between the two sisters and julie christie and the blind sister seems to be sort of channeling the dead daughter and while she's doing that she it's it sounds she's making very orgasmic sounds she's rubbing her own breasts Mm uh in a way that is that is uncomfortable in the context of like, wait, I thought we were dealing with a little girl because this is <laughs> a this has become gross. Uh, but <clears throat> I feel like Nicholas Rogue is just an extremely sexual filmmaker. I think it's something that he, I think he realizes like it, something as primal as that is going to play into so many things that we do, even the things that you would not in- initially. Uh, associate with that um, and it's actually something I'm I'm so glad that I rewatched the witches I saw it when I was a kid yeah and when we get there yeah it, Jim Henson kids movie you wouldn't think it wouldn't be you wouldn't think it would be quite as sexual as it is it is oh good and I'll talk about it when okay, we get yeah. there um, let's move on to... I'm not gonna be talking for a while now so go to town
1: okay well I um, mean well this is I won't be able to spend too long on the man who fell to earth because outside after the witches, it's the one that has been the longest since I've seen it. has been close to, it's probably been more than 15 years since I've seen the man who fell to earth. But, um, David Bowie plays an alien who comes to earth to help save his planet. Um, and here's where we get back to Nicholas rogues cynicism. Uh, he finds the world to be a terrible, awful place and becomes an alcoholic. Um, he's an alien alcoholic, uh, and that's his only way of sort of, um, being able to cope with mm. how awful he finds the world. Um, but it also has, uh, to go back to just to pick up on things that, um, uh, show up in his movies from time to time. The idea of different parts of, the story or just different times of the world happening simultaneously. Um, there's a part where we see David Bowie sort of driving through the plane States. And then we see dust bowl, like people from the the depression. Mm. And at first it seems like, okay, this is just a sort of montage editing type thing, but then they make eye contact him. And so it's, and that could be because he's an alien. Maybe he's, tapped into something else but Nicholas Rogue is not one to overexplain explain things ever right. in fact I feel like if you were to ask Nicholas Rogue which you can't now rest in peace but if you a- 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 ask Nicholas Rogue about in any movie any one of his movies if you were to point to a moment and say is that real or is that a dream sequence? I think he would be exasperated that you're not understanding the movie. Cause that's not yeah. the point of his movies. Everything is sort of as real to the characters as anything else. Right. And it doesn't fall into such, uh, rigid, uh, rigid, rigid, uh, roles. But, uh, um, I'm trying to think what else I wanted to say about the man who fell to earth. Oh yeah. Another time he cast a famous musician, uh, in the lead role. I might've mentioned that it was David Bowie. um, and um was there one other thing that i wanted to say about it no i said cynical and i said the alcoholism thing and i mentioned the dust bowl thing those are all of my notes on the man of earth it also is a sexual movie Mm -hmm. if you ever wanted to see rip torn's dick um you you can see rip torn's dick in this movie i'm Um, so furious i haven't seen the movie now (laughs) um uh it also there's a there's a you know the actor uh is it is his name bernie casey um sounds familiar yeah look him up because once you see him if i'm getting his name right um hold on uh this is really interesting yeah bernie Oh yeah casey, okay yeah, yeah yeah he's in a lot of stuff and uh so he's an african-american actor mm-hmm. and um he he play in the man who felt earth he plays a very powerful head of a Uh, a corporation or he's a military man. Again, it's been only more than 15 years, but he plays a a person of a lot of power and, and respect. And I don't think, I don't think of Nicholas Rugg as an outwardly political filmmaker. No. um, Even though I think that uh, his politics probably do uh, (laughs) as they do to anyone uh, inform his, his choices. But, um, (coughs) it, it, he does seem to like by positioning Bernie Casey's character as not just powerful, but specifically powerful in the sort of establishment. Uh, he does seem to be saying something about either the way things are or the way they could be. Mm-hmm. Um, cause obviously, uh, that was even rarer, uh, 40 years ago than it is, is now. Mm-hmm. um, I think that was the other thing I wanted to mention about the man who fell to earth next up. Okay. Now we get to one that I watched very recently. Nineteen Eighties bad timing. This is not the fourth one you've seen. No, because I thought it might be, uh, one that you've seen because I think, and you might know this, is this the first movie that Tom Waits ever let one of his songs be used in? Uh, I don't know
0: exactly, but uh, looking as far as the timing goes, that that sounds about
1: right. Yeah, I think I I think it is. um, Although now I can't remember the song, but um, uh, that's why I thought you might have maybe seen it just as a a Tom Waits fan, Um, because obviously he saw something in it. But this is the third time he cast a musician in the the lead role. This is Art Garfunkel uh, stars in Bad Timing along alongside someone you're going to be hearing a lot about, uh, over these next few films, Teresa Russell, mm-hmm. um, who would go on to be Nicholas rogue's wife and his star in a number of the movies, uh, to come. Um, and this is another movie like performance was, uh, I think a lot of this movie has to do with, uh, depictions of masculinity. I think, like Nicholas rogue was about a lot of stuff. He's pretty cynical about mm-hmm. it. And I think, uh, it's, and maybe it's because I watched this very recently where we're com- at a time when conversations about toxic masculinity are coming up more often, but, uh, art Garfunkel plays a character who is not someone you th- would think of. He's played by art Garfunkel. It's not something you would think of as inherently right, masculine. So and- right. But the way that he treats Teresa Russell in his, Relationship. He's uh, he's like a, a, a businessman, and she's sort of a um, bohemian, free spirit type, and they have this on again, off again relationship. And he's very controlling in, in a way that feels. Um, it's just always interesting to me. I came up recently when I was watching Robert Smikus' Welcome to Marwin. The idea that you don't have to be quote unquote macho to be a right. misogynist. You can be oh, yeah. sort of this meek and soft spoken, you know, guy who dresses well and has curly hair, yeah. but you can still be misogynist. I was going to ask,
0: so he's this businessman. Does he still have the art Garfunkel hair? Yeah, or he is does. it okay?
1: Yeah. Um, and, uh, and this movie is very far out of uh, chronological order um, because it starts with you learning that Teresa Russell's character has overdosed and then, The movie it takes place in Vienna. Almost all the characters are American. I like Art Garfunkel, Teresa Russell, and then Harvey Keitel plays a cop. Hmm. I don't know if he's, I'm not sure if he's supposed to be Viennese and he has a Harvey Keitel accent somehow, or he's an American who joined the police force in Vienna. I don't understand. But, um, so the movie is kind of structured like a flashback police procedural of Harvey Keitel, Mm-hmm. trying to learn because he doesn't trust our garfield story about how about the overdose and as things go on we don't either where we tend to be uh a step or two ahead of harvey Cadell's character but not too far we we learn things just a little bit before he does mm-hmm. um but again nicholas rogue being nicholas rogue he's not going to make a straightforward genre movie right. so it, it has this loose detective procedural structure but that's not really the point um the point is again a very cynical look at re- relationships in general and sex in particular. Um, there are things I want to say about the ending of bad timing that I won't because I don't want to okay. spoil it, I guess, or give it away. But uh, it feels weird to be like cagey, protecting a spoiler that is really upsetting. Okay, <laughs> um, but uh, the the movie definitely goes to to some some dark places. But it does match his or does uh, mark his first. Um, uh, Um, collaboration with Teresa Russell. There's also... Oh, yeah, this isn't my insight, but uh, uh, I read this somewhere else. I heard this somewhere else, but um, Bad Timing is a very psychologically concerned movie that takes place in Vienna, the city of Sigmund Freud. I I think that is probably intentional, um, or at least he maybe saw that in Vienna and and played it up. Uh, I did have a thought,
0: incidentally. uh, Just describing like, oh, Harvey Keitel plays a cop, but he's American in Vienna. And when I think of something like The Third Man, which is on uh-huh. my mind because I showed a clip from it today, um, it's, you know, the main character in in The Third Man, the, the cops that he deals with are British, like because Vienna at the time is sort of split up into all these different factions. And so I wonder, d- anytime... Uh, anytime a movie takes place in a certain location or a certain, uh, part of the world and it's out of place, you know, like this story should be New York, but it's in Vienna. (laughs) So anytime I, I see that, I always wonder if it's for a very particular reason. Like you said, like there's a connection to Sigmund Freud for film people, which I think Nicholas Rogue is, you know, was one, uh, it has a connection to, uh, a classic film where a guy is find finds himself like caught up in this story and is heavily under suspicion by the police and that sort of thing so i don 't know' it's, it might have something to do with that i don 't know
1: um, yeah a uh, couple other notes so I mentioned this is another one of the major ones that was hated by the studio that made it so much that. The, or the at least the production company Rank Pictures or whatever I mm. think is what they're called uh, took their logo off the movie um, like J J Arthur Rank uh, like that I don't know oh, okay uh, but I know that it was called Rank and they took their logo off and people found it because it's a it's a it's not a romance it's a relationship movie about mm. two people that are just terrible and are awful to one another one of them happens to be more awful than the other one but um, uh, and, and again I don't want to. Spoiler it feels weird to say spoiler. I don't want to give away the ending, but um it does get perverse. Okay. Um and so I think people are people are often uncomfortable with his movies. And this is considered his last or you might some people might say that The Man Who Felt The Earth was his last great movie, or if not, then Bad Timing is his people tend to think that he went downhill after bad timing. I don't think that's necessarily true. I think we've okay. got at least one real winner uh, coming up in the early 90s. Uh, or no, late 80s. Um, but uh, uh, I, I, I do wonder maybe this was a step too far for some people. His movies already made people uncomfortable, but now they're about people that are just hateful. Yeah. And, uh, and, and it goes to dark, uncomfortable uh, sexual places.
0: Do you think that somebody like... You know, there, there are different types of filmmakers and I, you know, I would feel comfortable grouping certain types of, you know, like James Cameron, Steven Spielberg, Robert Zemeckis. Like I feel very comfortable grouping them together as far as like okay. very mainstream sensibilities, interested in technology, that sort of thing. Okay. Um, not usually experimenting much narratively. Okay. With a couple of exceptions here and there, but certainly um, welcome
1: to Marwin, uh, Experiments with narrative, sure, yeah, you yeah, haven't watched the other, right, but then I feel
0: yeah. like certain elements of Munich, I think so there okay. there are exceptions, but uh, and similarly, when I think of somebody like a Nicholas Rogue as a guy who even his most accessible movies are not easy hmm. and preoccupation with like sexual stuff, uh, and I would venture to say a certain misanthropic uh, tendency, so like. I would feel. I feel like I would put him in the camp of like he's somewhere in between Lars von Trier and like Neil LeBute. Uh, oh, sure. Like if, if if you were to watch like one movie by each of those yeah. three in one night, it would not be
1: inconsistent. Totally. Yeah, that's probably that's probably true. Uh, even though stylistically, yeah, they're very there's right. a lot of differences. as There are differences between. Uh, James Cameron and, and Robert Zemeckis, right. uh, stylistically, but uh, yeah, there's as far yeah, as the way you feel. There's definitely out of a that. lot of misanthropy uh, yeah. in in his movies. Um, so let's move on to 1982's Eureka, which uh, stars Gene Hackman. And that's a crazy cast. Mm-hmm. It's Gene Hackman, Teresa Russell again, of course, Rutger Hauer, who's great in it, um, Joe Pesci. Um, as a, he's playing a gangster as usual, oh. but a Jewish gangster this time. Okay. It's Joe Pesci with a yarmulke on, um, uh, which you don't see every day. Uh, I see Mickey Rourke, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. Mickey Rourke is in it. Um, I feel like there's, uh, oh, Ed, Ed Lauder, um, yeah. uh, has a pretty big part actually. Uh, yeah. So it's very loosely based on the true story. Uh, the real guy was Canadian. Um, a prospector who was broke for most of his life until he was like middle aged. And then after having purchased a claim that everyone thought was a dud and had nothing on it, found an incredibly rich vein of gold and become one of the richest people in the world. And then spent the rest of his life fabulously wealthy, but miserable. And then was murdered. Um, I guess that's kind of a spoiler for the movie that Gene Hagman's character does get murdered in it. Um, uh, but, um, it's again, a very cynical movie this time about, about money. And it's interesting. I talked about part of the reason I brought up, like whether Manifeld Earth is sort of trying to predict the future or, or seeing things coming and changes and in, in, in race in America or whatever. Um, it's interesting to see this movie 1982 at the very beginning of the, you know, Reagan Thatcher eighties, excess right wall street you know wall street the place and wall street the movie you know gordon gecko greed is good type of decade to see him come in at the beginning and make this movie whose entire point is screaming at you money won't make you happy and in fact enough of it will probably make you fucking miserable yeah uh, and again it's a beautiful movie most of it takes place once you leave the uh, it takes but first in like the wintry like northern california um uh, that's where he uh, has a long uh, in a way it kind of similar to there'll be blood having that long sequence of him, you right. know, but this one has dialogue in it uh, and is more violent um, uh, up to, up to his initial discovery. And then it ju- it just jumps decades from uh, him becoming rich to him having a grown daughter played by Teresa Russell and having bought this uh, house. I can't remember where it's supposed to be, like in the Bahamas or something. I think it's the Bahamas. I can't remember. Or maybe that's the real guy, the, uh, the Canadian Sir Harry Oak, might have been his name? I can't remember. Um, Here the character's name is Jack McCann. uh, Yeah, very, it's a very Gene Hackman type of (laughs) name. Um, So full of beautiful uh, photography, but incredibly cynical and incredibly uh, anti-greed and anti-just money, I guess, anti-wealth, and was also really poorly received by a lot of people. Mm. And I can understand why, because at the same time as it being, it's being literally a beautiful movie, the way it's shot. It is a very, very ugly movie in the way that, um, that, that things unfold the way that it feels about people. And then again, not again. Okay. Yeah. For the first time for the first, but also I kind of, yeah, I spoiled that he gets murdered. his murder scene is like horror movie graphic and mm. very disturbing. Um, because these, uh, these Jewish gangsters, who want him to sell some of his land. Yeah. Aren't content to just murder him. They want to just completely destroy his corpse. And, yeah. and, uh, it's, it gets really, really gross. Um, um, turning what else I was going to say. Rugger Hauer plays a, um, the anti-money guy who's kind of a, uh, new age, voodoo type of guy oh wow um except he's full of shit in a lot of ways too and is kind of an asshole so uh nicholas rogue sees um he's he's he an can equal fi- opportunity to find the worst in <laughs> yeah. everyone <laughs> yeah <laughs> um yeah so it has kind of this there'll be blood type of like um uh or citizen kane in some ways type of type right. of feel um trying to remember uh so i made all these notes but i didn't put them in a good order so i'm trying to remember if there's anything else i wanted to get to with eureka uh no just that uh once again is is with um uh theresa russell who has a uh very long monologue at the end the movie doesn't end with gene hackman's murder uh mm-hmm. it's pretty far into the movie but there's a whole uh trial after after the fact and so she has a very long uh monologue that i think just i think that I, I want this movie to be revisited by people the way that I not revisited because I watched it for the first time just a few weeks ago. Um, Cause I fully understand why people were so turned off by it. It's it's uh, it has an ugly view of the world and it also has a lot of theatricality to it. And so Teresa Russell is giving this monologue that's very big, almost like she's suddenly in this romance movie, but I think it's the right, Choice. I think I understand why he continued to cast her in movies after bad timing and after this, um, and I understand why they found each other on the same uh, wavelength. Um, But yeah, this is the it's I guess long long held consensus wisdom or whatever it is that this was his first real dud. But I don't think that's fair. Okay. All right. And now, stupid app. stupid Adam. <laughs> stupid stupid okay what are we looking uh, at? so then we're gonna have to <laughs> skip a couple because i haven't seen insignificance okay. r.i.p filmstruck uh i haven't seen castaway i don't actually really know much about that one um we got some shorts here and then the next one i am going to talk about which i think is the the real later career gem from him is 1988's track 29 okay Sorry, I had to take a drink of water. So once again, Teresa Russell (laughs) stars. So uh, uh,
0: a quick note, Um, again, some of these films I, I haven't seen, but when you look at their cast, like he's somebody that I don't think he's a moneymaker. His movies don't necessarily like aren't always that well received, but he does attract Pretty solid talent, and yet, yeah. like looking at this, I see that Gary Oldman is, not admittedly, he isn't who he he wasn't who he is now. But yeah. like Christopher Lloyd uh, is in it, and then uh, oh, nice, Seymour Cassell and Leon Rippey and Sandra Bernhard.
1: Sandra Bernhard, uh, yeah. But
0: um, but even stuff like Eureka. I mean, Joe Pesci had been in Raging Bull at that point, and uh, you know, and Gene Hackman, and so like he he is one of these people, like a Lars von Trier, who right makes a very specific type of movie that very few people are going to actually enjoy. Uh, but, but but he seems to attract actors want to work with him. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. The, uh, yeah, I, I do wonder if there's like a grapevine or a uh, out there of actors spreading the idea of like, you know, you got to work with this yeah. person. Um, actually, I mean, Mal- is- Malik is another one. Not that his movies yeah. are this
0: difficult, but they're difficult in their own way. Yeah. And he's someone that you can't even guarantee that if you act for him, you're going to be in the movie. Yeah. But people still want to work with him.
1: Um, I remember, re- I can't remember, if it was this an interview that I was watching and reading with Bruce Dern mm. talking about how. Al Pacino came up to him like out of nowhere at one point and was like, Nebraska That was a man. he was like I didn't he was like <laughs> I think I can't remember the phrase that Bruce Dern used uh or that Bruce Dern said Al Pacino used, but it was something like, I didn't see you working or whatever Mm. you know I didn't see the work yeah I just saw the character or whatever and Bruce Dern was like you got to work with Alexander Payne (laughs) so maybe maybe we'll see Al Al Pacino and Alexander Payne movie uh sometime soon but I I, I like the idea of (laughs) of like actors recommending directors to other actors like like their tailors or whatever I also (laughs) gotta go to (laughs) (laughs) go to my guy I got this
0: guy Alexander Payne (laughs) um I like the idea of Bruce Dern not necessarily frail, but old and getting older and then just minding his own business. And then Nebraska just like, and like giving him a heart attack. He's like crazy ass Al Pacino yeah. just
1: yells in his face. Um, okay. So track 29, I think is a real gem and is also, it is especially perverse. Okay. Um, so, uh, Teresa Russell plays a, uh, a housewife, um, whose husband, played by Christopher Lloyd, mm-hmm. uh, only cares about one thing, and that's his model trains. And then he goes off to work where he works as a doctor, where he's having an affair with a nurse, played by Sandra Bernhard, who actually likes his trains. He's, he's celebrated in the in the model train community. There's a part where he speaks at a model train convention where he might as well be like a revival preacher. <laughs> it's really, really an awesome... And, and that's where the uh, title comes from, because he starts as a part of his speech, he starts quoting the lyrics to the Chat song, Choo- Choo- yeah. so he goes track 29 and a big, uh, Christopher Lloyd <laughs> voice. It's great. It's not um, a bad Christopher Lloyd just then, yeah, by the way, I'll never be able to do it again. Yeah. Um, so she's a miserable and bored housewife. And one day she's at the diner with, uh, her friends and she sees this drifter who stops in played by Gary Oldman. And they have a little sort of interaction. And the next day he, out of nowhere, shows up at her house and um, claims to be the son that she gave up when she was younger. Okay. Now, the ages don't work. Okay. Okay? (laughs) All right. And the movie is very much aware of that. (laughs) And I think this is, this is what I was saying earlier, about the idea that it would be missing the point to ask Nicholas Rogue what is real in this Mm -hmm. movie. This is the chief example you have no idea whether or not this guy even exists yeah much less whether he is who he says he is whether what happens when they're together actually happens there's a part where uh he seems to have a gun that didn't exist before Hmm. um and so but what i'm not what i haven't gotten to yet is that a he says he's her long-lost son b they clearly have a almost irresistible sexual tension between them <laughs> it, it, it's a it's a very perverse movie that i also think is uh incredibly exciting and um it's a uh, unique work only nicholas rogue could have could have made it and it's got lots of great shots of model trains <laughs> uh, it sort of opens with like a shot that like the, tr- the train and the model are framed so that they could be real, like they could right. be real size and sort of train sort of goes past the camera. Oh, like Ant-Man. And, uh, yeah, sort of like that. And then you see Christopher Lloyd's head just like dip <laughs> into the frame.
0: <laughs> I mean, it's model trains are, uh, trains in general are obviously phallic. And so right. do you think that was... Uh, I'm sure,
1: yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. Um, and then also, uh, again, I'm not the first person to have thought of this, but Gary Ullman's character as a... Um, uh, potentially supernatural presence with a British accent in America is not unlike David Bowie's sure. character in The Man Who Fell to Earth. Um, he does seem to be sort of quoting himself in in that way. So, um, yeah, I, I, when I was going through these, these 80s uh, Nicholas Rogue movies, I was absolutely delighted when I stumbled upon track 29. It is definitely worth checking out. Uh, next up I think you get to talk again oh boy because it's the witches right which I haven't seen since I was uh, no higher than a whatever Um, a small child Yeah, (laughs) I was trying to think of something folksy and I couldn't think of something folksy Uh, oh man you've changed yeah I'm normally
0: pretty folksy. <laughs> yeah, you you are. It's uh, d- deeply off-putting. Um, yeah, so uh, I saw The Witches, uh, I believe, on video uh, when I was a kid and thought it was fine. I found it a little bit uncomfortable. Um, and in watching, in re-watching it, of course I found it uncomfortable. <laughs> Good Lord. Because he shot it like a Nicholas Rogue film. It's still the the Dutch angles, like the very abrupt edits um and then anytime something supernatural is happening it feels like like don't look now it feels um it feels like a very adult uh, adult oriented suspense film um i feel like a a kid could watch this and be scared simply because of the general tone like it does it just sets you on edge yeah i remember Um, finding it very Uh, unsettling. Yeah. Unsettling. Yeah. Yeah, That's perfect. Um, and the story, it's based on a rolled doll book. Um, and the, the story is pretty contained. It's mostly, it mostly just takes place in this hotel and this, and a, a convention of witches, uh, gather and, and they hatch this scheme where they're going to turn like all the kids in Britain into mice and there comes a moment, as there always must in a rolled doll story, where a supporting character is a, a more obnoxious kid and uh, he needs to be made an example of just <laughs> to show us the stakes. And so this kid, Bruno, who is, ob- he's not ab- terrible, but he's obnoxious. And so they, they, uh, gave him some of this potion and it's timed out that he'll turn into a mouse at a certain time. And so in the midst of this, uh, convention, uh, the main witch and Angel- the grand high witch, uh, played by Angelica Houston, she like calls him in. And so he's like standing there, like, in front of everyone, wondering, like, what's uh, what's going on? Uh, and then he starts to turn into a mouse, and the transformation
1: is truly horrifying. That, the I, makeup effects are awful. that is something that definitely has stuck yeah. with me from when I it's been a long time, but I remember that transformation. It's uh, it's right up there with yeah. Lampwick in Pinocchio, yeah, yeah. Uh, but with uh, Jim Henson's help, yes, time,
0: uh, yeah. Uh, And it's Jim Henson doing more horrifying work than we are used to, even in the 80s when he was doing stuff like Labyrinth and the Dark Crystal and that kind of thing. Um, But here's the thing we get like these quick cuts and like these crazy angles of Bruno himself as he's changing. And then we get shots of Angelica Houston. And I'm telling you, like, the only way to describe what she is doing is just grinding. (laughs) Or you could say writhing. She seems to be deriving overt sexual pleasure from watching this happen. And when you see, uh, you know, when you see Nicholas Rogue films, Uh you think, yeah, oh, there's there's no question. He said, hey, uh, this is orgasmic for you. Enjoy. Um, And it's.
1: It's an, It's such a strange That reminds film. me of something that I, I I didn't watch this for research here, but long, a long time ago I watched an interview with Julie Christie about the sex scene oh, okay. in Don't Look Now, and she did her impression of Nicholas Rowe because he tended to uh, operate his own camera. Oh, and okay. so his, her impression of she's riding around in the bed with Donald Sutherland and Nicholas Rowe is walking around with the camera going, okay, Julie, come. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> 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 yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so that's I imagine that's what he was saying to Angel Gates. Yeah.
0: And then the kid playing Bruno's like, What does that mean? He goes, Nothing. No but shut up. Um you're a terrible kid you're gonna grow up into a terrible adult. And I will document all of it. No, it's uh it's just such a in a way it's perfect because roald Dahl his his films tended to have a very dark Perverse, maybe not sexually perverse quality and tended to be a little bit, <laughs> a little bit misanthropic themselves. So the two do go together, but I will say that there, I mean, there is not an ounce of whimsy in the witches. It's, it's very straightforward. It's not to, I mean, it's, it's stylistic to be sure, but like when you think of, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, or really any of these others, there's always, it has these darker elements, but there's always like this, a twinkle in the eye, no twinkles uh, in the witches, it is a, I mean, okay, so here's, here's the thing, I respect Nicholas Rogue quite a bit, and I can intellectually enjoy His movies, but I don't enjoy them. Mm -hmm. I don't enjoy The Witches. I didn't enjoy (laughs) performance. I didn't enjoy Don't Look Now. I appreciate them and I found them invigorating in certain ways. But I would, if I had a kid, I would not show him The Witches, him or her The Witches, because, like, I don't want to. Don't get me wrong. Early Disney had really uh, disturbing things as well. It's not that. It's just the tone of it is just so uncomfortable, even in the midst of a family film.
1: Yeah, all of it. He does seem like he's trying to make you uncomfortable. Oh, undoubtedly. But not in like a uh, strident, like Michael Hanukkah type of like, he's not lecturing you. He doesn't think he's any better. He thinks we're all pieces of shit. Oh, yeah. And you deserve to see movies about people who are pieces of shit. Yeah. Um, And I definitely think that. That sort of went on more in the eighties, and that's kind of why he got uh, uh, less and less uh, acclaim. Because I think his movies do make people very uncomfortable, but and, they're, and they're designed to.
0: Yeah, and you mentioned the eighties; like it was the Reagan era. It was like it was. It's morning in America. Like it was. We're walking on sunshine. It was. <laughs> it was an era of, of optimism coming out of a, a decade that was between Watergate and Vietnam and various things like seen as a, and, and a, a, a depression and all that. Um, and so his, his films really fit with the seventies and then they didn't really fit with the eighties. I don't think he was doing anything really different. And so when people say that like he, he hit his stride in the seventies or that's when he was at his best, like, no, it's just when, it's just he kept doing what he was doing, and the era changed. Yeah. And I realize that it's more than just the U.S., but, you know, with Thatcher and Reagan, like, it was definitely people trying to focus more on positivity and excess and all of that. Not to imply his films aren't excessive in their own way. Yeah. But not the way people like.
1: Uh, should we move on? Uh, sure. Uh, my final one, I guess— by my math, you have another one after this. I do. My final one, um, 1991, is also his final movie with Teresa Russell. I think they split um, after this. It's called Cold Heaven. Okay. Uh, it's not his best, um, but it has some very Nicholas Rogue type stuff going on. Uh, it, uh, like Much like Eureka, it was buried by the studio, barely released. I think it was kind of, a, from what I understand, it was kind of like a... Uh, Red Rock West thing where they like gave it a nominal theatrical release basically just to qualify for TV deals. And Mm -hmm. then most people who saw cold heaven saw it on television. Um, but, uh, Teresa Russell plays, um, the wife of a very, uh, wealthy doctor played by Mark Harmon. Okay. Um, and she is having an affair with one of his doctor colleagues played by James Russo. And, uh, she is planning to tell Mark Harmon that she's leaving him. She's going to do it while they're on their, uh He has a conference in Acapulco. They're going together to vacation in Acapulco. And her plan is to tell him there after his conference when he's in a good mood. But uh, the day before his conference, they're out in the water and he gets hit by a speedboat and killed. Um, and so she goes back home, but her guilt is such that she doesn't want to now run to, into James Russo's arm. She's reconsidering their whole deal. He's not happy about that. And, uh, the weird thing that happens then is that Mark Harmon shows up Uh, again. Nicholas rogue does not care to explain what's happening. Right. Does not care to explain like how he survived when she clearly saw his dead body on the table in the Mexican, uh, hospital does not care to imply that he might be a ghost. It doesn't matter. What's happening in that moment is happening in the moment. Yeah. And that's all that matters. Um uh, and you could also to go back to something I was saying much earlier, the idea that people's psychology affects their immediate surroundings, mm-hmm. you could say that her guilt is the tease manifested because of her guilt. That right. That's right. what she brought uh she brought back. Um uh, it gets even more supernatural, uh, and ends up involving, um, some priests and a nun. There's a, uh, a bad priest named Monsignor Cassidy played by Richard Bradford. I don't know the actor, but he's very good. Uh, but then the good kind priest is played by your boy. Yeah. Will Patton. Uh, and the kindly nun is played by the great Talia Shire. Hmm. um, and so yeah, it goes to some very very weird supernatural places after that. Uh, oh, Richard Bradford. Okay, I see. What he's, do you know uh, him Because he's really good in the movie. As, as a is uh, he Irish? Uh, not in the movie, he's not. Okay, because in
0: uh, the Untouchables, he plays an Irish cop. Okay, uh, who is like on the take and is uh, uh, sort of at odds with the Sean Connery character.
1: Yeah. Uh, here he plays a priest who doesn't like that. He has to meet with parishioners and his goal is to tell them what they want to hear and get them out of his office as quickly as possible. So basically a <laughs> priest a Nicholas rogue film. If <laughs> yeah, I had exactly. to guess. But Will Patton's a good priest. Okay. Um, that's good. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's, it's not his best work. It's kind of a bummer to end with that one, but it definitely has a lot of, uh, very Nicholas rogue type stuff going on. And it's definitely notable for being his last collaboration with, uh, Teresa Russell. Okay, so next for me, next and last for me, um, is the
0: 1993 TV movie, Heart of Darkness, which... Oh, and see, this is
1: like... Like you with some of the other movies, I saw clips of Heart of Darkness in my okay. high school lit class when we when we read Heart of Darkness. They showed us clips, but I didn't. Okay, I didn't see enough of it to feel comfortable talking at length about it. Yeah, I saw it in
0: high school uh, just on my own um, because I had seen Apocalypse Now mm. and was interested in a film adaptation of the original story. Um, <clears throat> At the time, uh, I did not find it particularly intriguing. I think I wanted Apocalypse Now, um, and I was struck. Uh, but what struck me was some of the camera angles, and uh, I don't recall it being particularly uh, overtly sexual. Again, it was a TV movie, right. but the the way that the main characters. You know, uh, was it Marlo? Yeah, Marlo and Kurt. Kurtz. The way yeah. the way they um, regard each other, I didn't. It, in retrospect, I don't. I don't know if I would say it's sexual, but it definitely struck me at the time. It seemed oddly intimate and familiar for two guys that have only just met. Yeah, um, and I don't think that he was necessarily playing uh i don't think he was uh, have, uh, suggesting that the characters are attracted to each other just that there is something that something that attracts them to each other but not necessarily sexuality so um so yeah i wish i could say i remembered more about it but i i have a very specific memory of that i i don't think i probably even would have been could have been able to verbalize it at the time um
1: but it it struck me it made me a little bit uncomfortable now that i think about it the one memory that i really have from that is from the beginning because i think the my teacher showed us mostly clips from the beginning we we actually didn't see very much of john malkovich we saw mostly tim roth but one thing that that sticks out to me that clearly nicholas Nicholas rogues was fascinated in that's in the novel is do you remember the phrenology scene where tim roth has his skull measured you know yeah, yeah yeah that old yeah long debunked practice you know pseudoscience of being yeah. able to tell things about people i've got my based on the shapes of their skull yeah um but the idea there's a whole like there's medical equipment that goes with it. And it had kind of a horror movie feel, mm-hmm. um, and heart of darkness is not really a horror movie, but I, I do remember, uh, Nicholas Rowe was clearly fascinated with the way that people, uh, used to make assumptions <laughs> about people based oh, on yeah. the shape of their skull. And he liked measuring Tim Roth's skull. That's um, what sticks
0: out to me. And then also just a, a note. Um, James Fox is, is in the film. Yeah. I, I have no memory of him in it, but looking at the, at the cast right now, it's like, all right, so he decided to come back and work with Nicholas rogue, even though rogue drove him into the arms of God. (laughs) Um, So, uh, yeah. So that's the last thing of his that I've seen, but I will say just kind of, I don't want to make any assumptions, but I think it's safe to say that, uh, we can looking Uh at his filmography. There is a film called full body massage, one called hotel paradise he did he directed the 96 miniseries of samson and delilah if i had to guess i would say delilah is rather sexual Uh um he made a film in 2007 called puffball the devil's eyeball which i want i want to see that more than anything in my life at this point well that
1: one is actually supposed to be uh very explicit from what i understand um yeah uh and it stars uh kelly Riley and miranda richardson oh, okay yeah yeah and donald sutherland oh i didn't look at that i didn't go that far i
0: guess, I, guess I will have to see puffball the devil's eyeball yeah um yeah it's and so and then he made a film uh, it's the film that buys the cinema in yeah, I don't 2014 know i don't
1: know what that is yeah um but yeah so um I'm really glad that I saw uh, a lot of his movies. I think um, uh, I, I don't want to get into too much of my own psychology, but I think some of the themes that oh, he explored, explored explores really. Um, I think I have. We've talked about pet themes before, mm-hmm. you know, and I think maybe it's because of my Catholic upbringing, which comes up in Cold Heaven, of course. But I think people who are kind of fucked up about sex tend to be fascinating characters to me and so uh there's a lot of that in his in his movies um so i think that tends to tends to speak to me his shooting and editing style is um something that uh is found in a lot of the movies that i tend to really like that sort of impressionistic uh, uh approach um the and the idea of you know, coherent narrative being mo- mo- almost an afterthought. A lot of The time yeah. is, uh, is, is absolutely fine with me. So, um, yeah, I, I already liked Nicholas rogue a lot before I watched some of these, as you mentioned, as you mentioned, uh, back at the beginning of the episode, when I first saw walkabout, I couldn't stop talking about how much I, yeah. I loved it. Um, and I like him even more now having watched, um, stuff from the latter half of his career that is considered, minor or lesser work but uh yeah eureka not for everyone but definitely it's a big bold movie and we're checking out track 29 it's great yeah those sound really fascinating and it and it goes
0: to this you know i might make my jokes about puffball the devil's eyeball which obviously i have to say the whole title why wouldn't you right but um but just because a director like just because they kind of fall out of favor as long as they're continuing to make movies, those movies are still going to be worth discussing when talking about the director. Uh, they're not going to stop being themselves
1: just yeah. because they're they're no longer like getting a huge budget. And know? this is what I I can't remember why we talked about this, but recently we were talking about Francis Ford Coppola on the podcast, and mm-hmm. I had, I think, um, unfortunately it might be after he passes away, but his yeah. his like two thousands work or uh, his twentieth twenty first century work like Twixt and youth without youth mm-hmm. um and other stuff like that I think is gonna be is gonna appreciate a resurgence yeah. or get a resurgence in appreciation um at some point um perhaps unfortunately after he dies i guess
0: because I think so many people uh and I'm probably one of them it's the movies that we see are the movies that we are supposed to see because they're part of the conversation. Right. You know, uh, every year when we do our top 10, there's usually one or two movies in my top 10 and certainly yours. I think that I'll put quotes around this. Nobody gives a shit about,
1: mm, yeah.
0: it's like, well, that doesn't mean the movie is bad. And so like with somebody like Coppola, people are like, oh, well, he's not making the Godfather or apocalypse yeah. now or the conversation. And really, nobody's really talking about, what was it, Tetro? Tetro, yeah. Like, nobody's really talking about that, so I think I can just skip it. He's not who he used to be. It's like, but he's still him. Yeah, exactly. And that's worth remembering.
1: Yeah. I think that, as I get older, that's the type of film that I get more excited about. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, so, uh, rest in peace, Nicholas Rogue. Indeed. He made a lot of great movies. They're not always pleasant to watch yeah but they're worth all worth watching um and uh you can find us at battleship pretension.com you can email us at david at battleship pretension.com if you got especially if you're going to send up for the patreon indeed and you got questions for the mailbag email them to david at battleship pretension.com uh you can email tyler at tyler at battleship com. you can find me david on twitter at davy pretension let me real quick tell you about what's on the website this week my sundance coverage all of all day and all night. Yeah, I did. Yeah. I, I, I think this is. I think uh, I saw more movies and reviewed more movies this year than I have in. This is my fourth year at Sundance. I think I did more this time than ever before. Uh, other stuff on the website: the movie Meltdown podcast did their annual sort of in memoriam episode, looking mm-hmm. at the people we lost in 2018. I for the post on the website, I picked a picture of Nicholas Rogue. Um, we've got home video reviews of The Bounty uh, starring Mel Gibson, Anthony Hopkins Hopkins from, uh, from Alex. We've got, uh, reviews, theatrical reviews by me this week of piercing and Arctic. You've got another home video review of the Appaloosa written by Craig and, uh, over at, I do movies badly. Uh, Jim is finishing up his month of Malick with mm-hmm. the tree of life. So that's all available on the website. Um, Tyler, where can people, uh, or sorry, um, you have another website, another podcast. It's called more than one lesson. What's going on over there? Uh, let's see. So,
0: uh, the salty cinema podcast, uh, has started up again, uh, with, uh, Jacob interviewing, uh, some interesting people that he's worked with, uh, over the years, but he's also, uh, interviewed like Alyssa Wilkinson and, uh, some notable, uh, Christians in the industry and adjacent to the industry. Um, and then, uh, the fear of God podcast, uh, did an episode called springtime for Shyamalan, uh, talking about the, his career leading up to, uh, glass, uh, which Reed is very much uh, in the minority there are people that like glass but yeah. Reed really likes glass and so uh, it's and he on his own website he he posted uh, his reasons why and then one of my writers uh, Bob Connolly uh, every year he he does the Bob awards he will readily admit he did not put much thought into the name, (laughs) Uh, but the, the Bob awards are just like, it's like the BPs, but there is only one voter and it's him. But, as a result, he tries to see as much stuff as he can. And so, uh, so the Bob award nominations have been posted. And then once again, um, I'm putting out a new book called cinematic suffering, uh, which is increasingly becoming more about, it does feature reviews I've written and a paper that I wrote, but, uh, the stuff that I'm specifically writing for it, uh, it's quickly becoming a, uh, I would venture to say a meditation on negative criticism and the role that it plays. I can't wait to get my copy. So, uh, so yeah, uh, you can pre-order that for twenty dollars if you go to lesson dot com and click on the uh, the graphic that says cinematic suffering. You can pre-order now, and we're like eighty five percent of the way there, so we're we're doing well.
1: But still, do it.
0: Uh, still yes, pre-order. absolutely.
1: Um, and then okay, we're gonna do. I think start doing this every week. The Patreon mm-hmm. this week uh, should be up. Late Tuesday night, early Wednesday morning, but no promises because this is the first one. We don't know if we'll hit any hiccups. But I'm very excited about what we're planning to do for this week's episode because it has been, as of this weekend, it weekend. uh, it has been 10 years since the greatest gift Christian Bale ever gave us, which is his meltdown on the set of Terminator Salvation Um, And so we are going to do a line by line analysis, close reading of the Christian Bale uh, Terminator Salvation meltdown. I feel like you may have
0: lost some sales here, David. I feel like we should have sprung that on them and not used it as a selling point. No,
1: I think it's a, it's definitely a selling point. I would, I would sign up for someone's (laughs) Patreon for here to hear that. But I do like love that, that rant, a little bit disproportionately somehow, indeed. Um, but uh, that's what we're going to kick off with. Um, we're going to have lots of fun stuff on the Patreon. So uh, yeah, Patreon.com/slash Battleship Retention. Uh, thanks for listening. We'll get you next time. Bye. Bye.